0: Cast. What's going on, everybody? It's Craig, your favorite executive producer from MTP. With the holiday season finally upon us, and the fact that COVID is back and shutting down our sports again, we figured we'd like to take this episode to look back at a very successful 2021 for us here at Missing the Point. On this episode, we're going to look back and listen to some of the highlights from some of our favorite interviews from the past year. If you want to listen to the full episodes of any of these interviews, all the links will be in the show notes. Up first, from episode 48... On March 30th, we sat down with Hall of Fame
1: sports writer from the Boston Globe, Dan Shaughnessy. I did stumble upon a pretty cool story, and I was wondering if you could give us a little insight into it, Dan. So, 1985 Easter Conference Finals, you notice that Larry Bird has taped two of his fingers together? And uh, I think you made the comment that it might be a little bit harder for him to shoot or a shooting percentage would go down. And he challenged you to a free throw shooting contest with, with one of his hands wrapped. So
2: I'd love just to hear a first person kind of how that went. Well, it's uh, now that we can, I can sell a little product here. And I just wrote a book. The book's called I Wish It Lasted Forever Beyond November. So I, I had that team for four years every day. And in those days, it was nobody's fault. But the way it was then, we, we lived with them. We we traveled, we waited for bags, hotels, buses, practice, everything. It was like being on the team without the groupies or the fame or the money. But other than that, it was the same thing. <laughs> so there we were. And you just got to know them and we were able to tell the readers what they were like. And it's very rare times. So yeah, they called me Scoop. That was my nickname. Whenever I'd come into the locker room, you know, Larry would say, Scoop, do you ever notice how quiet it gets? You walk in here. You know, it was true, you know, because nobody trusted me. It was, you know, a very good system we had. So, yeah, he was taping it like this at practice. So, he, there had been a barroom fight two nights earlier, and he might have had a broken bone. I don't know. But if you look up his playoff shooting, he shot 52% that year. It was his middle year of his three straight MVPs, height of his powers, the 60 point game, all that stuff, buzzer beaters left and right. And he got in the barroom fight, messed up his hand. He shot like 42% of the nine playoff games after this happened. But he was taping it like this at practice. And I said, after I said, you can't play in a game like that, right? he said, Scoop, I could tape my whole hand up, make more shots than you. <laughs> and I'm like, that's probably true, but that's not what we're talking about here. And it was almost like a pool hustler thing. He kind of must have done it before. So when they taped his hand like this, thumb was taped. It was like a, he had a boxing glove on. And we did 100. He, had, he said, we'll do 100 free throws, $5 a throw, 10 shots a round. And says, you want to go first or I'll go first? I said, I'll go first. He said, you don't like the pressure, do you? I said, that's right. So I went first. I made six out of ten. I was a good free throw shooter in high school. I, I sucked. I was a player, but I could shoot free throws. Made six out of ten just standing around. And he made six out of ten doing this. And then by the time he got to the third round, because I was rebounding, and they were all going, his he said, I figured this out. And he did. <laughs> and he ended up making 86 with his hand like that. 86 out of 100. And I started choking, because I'm seeing $5 bills flying through the air every time I'm letting go here now. And uh, so I lost $160 and went to the old Bay bank and got 820s out of the ATM. Next night he was doing his early shooting. I gave him his money, stuffed it in his sock. He played with my 820s in his sock that night. And I expensed this because I wrote a funny story about it. And I told my boss, I got a story came at some cost. I had to incur some expenses here. And evidently the word wager is frowned upon by the IRS. So it bounced back to accounting. So we switched it to eight nice. $20 lunches with Robert Parrish and just spelled it a day and I got my money back, but uh, that, nice. that didn't happen. So thanks for asking. You're welcome.
3: Actually, keep it with that same year. Cause I, I know you brought up the game of when you scored a six day against Atlanta and New Orleans, you see the highlights, but I'm like the highlights doesn't do it justice, man. Like just how, how was that game? And it's like how hot was he? What the? Were the Atlanta Hawks really just like just
2: fawning over how good he was? That's you got, got falling over the bench. He was, yeah, he was mind. like invincible that year. He was at the height of his uh, trash talking powers. He would tell guys what he was going to do in the inbounds pass that he would do it. And he started banking three pointers just because he could for the fun of it, and you know <laughs> putting his hand out for cash, running down the other end of the floor. And McHale had gotten 56 nine days earlier. Yeah, I Yeah, yeah short, yeah. Larry was feeding him because Larry hated Kent Benson, who was an Indiana guy who disrespected him in college. So he let McHale torch Kent Benson and get him ejected from the game. Kept feeding McHale the ball. And Kev got to 56, and he came out with like a minute to go. Larry said, well, Dad, you should stay in there because I'm going to get that. And then nine days later, we're in New Orleans because the Hawks played home games in New Orleans because they couldn't sell out the Omni in Atlanta. So we... Stayed at the New Orleans Hyatt and took a bus. Went by Rick Roby's high school on the way, and Roby went to Kentucky, which was pissed off Larry because Kentucky didn't recruit Larry Burry. They thought he was too slow, so they took Roby, who was even slower. And Larry always said it was all bribes. So we went by the high school. He said that's where Footer got all those bribes when he was in high school, right there, all fired up. And uh, we get to the gym, and it was all Celtic fans in New Orleans that night. And uh, yeah, they put the press right behind the Hawks bench. We were a little elevated. We we can see ourselves on that and Mike Fratello was the head coach, you know, short little guy. And uh, Ricky Brown was a guy who had been a Celtic draftee. He was on that team. I mean, they had Dominique Wilkins. They had they had some great players. Uh, Doc Rivers was on that team. And it kind of grew. And then by the fourth quarter in the Hawks bench, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, you know, and they were like leaning into each other and celebrating it fall down. And Larry started like going over to that side and just shooting right in front of them and just pointing to them. And all that video, I mean, they're not making it up. It's true. The, the Hawks were actually fined for that. It was bad. And uh, Fratello kept switching guys. He kept changing men and, and trying everything. And Fratello, he got into a little fight with Ricky Brown. We saw the whole thing. And when it was over, the GM of the Hawks came into the Celtic locker room with the game ball and had Larry sign it. It was like a souvenir for the Hawks. Uh, yeah, he just dropped 50 in our heads. You know, it was like, yeah, that that all happened. It was good. Oh, uh, what, what, what an honor, right? <laughs> good times. Is he the only player that you've ever
4: seen reach that level where he he starts just playing around in the middle of games?
2: Yeah, the, the talking was off the charts. We could hear it because in those days we said, I've got pictures I'm using in this book where we're sitting right, you know, where they where those people pay a thousand bucks now, like we were there with our table right there. And the worst was the Julius Irving Julius was 36 years old and Larry was in the middle of this three-year MVP at the height of his powers. And I mean, Julius would have toy with Larry Bird in his heyday but he was cooked, and Larry was dominant. He was bigger and stronger. And Larry had like 38 in the second half, or 38 by the third quarter. Oof. Julius was like one for nine. Larry was just, get somebody out of here, old man. You can't guard me. And finally, Julius went for his throat. It's a famous picture. They're, they're grabbing each other by the throat. And it was a Donnybrook, and it did not end well oh well, that that could never happen now guys would be kicked out the league you know
3: oh my god well, it cool. like, like uh like kermit washington right back in the day we did to. Uh, oh yeah oh, talking, oh i mean that god. was a little
2: different over Rudy Tom John. take a look at the mikhail takedown of Rambus in, in game four the 84 finals when mikhail comes across mm-hmm. the floor and clotheslines Rambus. Rambus's foot almost hits the rim he's so upended and it was two shots there was not even a flagrant rule then they had to change the <laughs> rules uh all around on that so uh Comment that, that did happen, and yeah, uh, comment foul, right? Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Up next, from episode 68 on June 22nd, Boston Bruins writer from Causeway Crowd and Fan Sided, and host of the Brew Wings and Things podcast, it's Tuca time with Kaylee Allard.
1: I was the leader of the Tuca Hate Club, the leader, uh, for yeah, for a very long time. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I know, uh, but. He changed my mind a lot in the Washington series and even more so in uh, in, in the Islander series. I, I think the reason, just just for clarification purposes, the reason why I was in the, uh, the, the Tuca hate club is because he's just so damn talented. He is really such a good goalie. And it felt like when you need, when you needed him the most last year, excluded that he was just never there. Right. But with him playing hurt this year, and with him not wanting to, to be pulled, do you think that he will change the mind of, of fans like me in, in this town because of the guts that he showed? Um, or is he just relegated to the, yeah, you're good, but you'll never beat
5: Tim"? Oh, Tuca will never get the credit unless he gets the Stanley Cup as the starter. Um, I've spoken to many Tuca haters because they're always in my Twitter and i have to see what they say about it unfortunately yeah. um, at this point I just don't respond to them it's not even worth my time but I I think Bruins fans and Boston fans in general are so spoiled like I always use this goaltender's name look at Tristan Jari on the Penguins that man cannot stop a beach ball like I'm, I'm not even like no joke when I was watching him play against the Islanders I was like this is their starter in the playoffs like this guy would maybe be decent in the AHL. It's that bad. Like, but um, no, because people complain when Tuka, so they want him to show heart, but he showed heart by playing through an injury, but now he's stupid for doing that. So it's a lose-lose for Tuka. Like, oh, he's a quitter. But if he sat out, they'd say, oh, he has an injury. He's faking and giving up on his team. But because he played, he's, hurting the team by playing with an injury. So the guy cannot win. So, I mean, if you look up the symptoms for a torn hip labrum, God. and you're a goaltender playing in a playoff game, sliding left to right, practically doing splits, sticking out your legs, people are like limping when they have torn hip labrums. It hurts to walk. And this man said, no, I'm suiting up for my team because I feel like I should. And he he told Apparently, he told Coach Cassidy he was healthy. Like, he was like, no, I'm good. And Bruce was like, he told us he was healthy. So this guy wanted to play, but that's still not good enough, and it never will be.
4: Yeah, so I, I echo those spoiled Boston sports fans times a million. Um. So a little fun fact about me, I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm a Cowboys fan, unfortunately. Um, it, it's one of my biggest flaws in life, I know.
5: You guys don't my other teams, but I can tell you later not all
4: boston that's that's what it comes down to though is like we have a different perspective of this that like so when teams make it to a championship i never see that as like a disappointment and i never will if you are good enough to play for a championship trophy that is a successful season you have done your job you were in it to win it to the end it's unbelievable that no one gives credit to tuka for leading us to that Stanley Cup in 2013, leading us to another Stanley Cup in 2019. Yes, we didn't win it, but you know what the hardest trophy to win in sports is? Ward Stanley Cup. And this dude has brought us within one game of doing that twice. And I've been echoing this since day one with Tuca. It's like exactly what you said about the Penguins goal. You got people don't know how good we really have it, having this guy in net. For as long as we've had him in net. Like, you think back to all these goalies, like Jean Sebastian Giguerre, amazing with Anaheim. What was his shelf life? Three to four years? Like, only the greats are around for this long. And just because he didn't get the cup, to me, doesn't make him not a great. Granted, yes, could he have shown heart in those game sevens? Could he have played better in those game sevens? 100%. But listen, the guy got us there. What what else it comes down to is like, listen, in that game seven against St. Louis, do you remember that first quarter? Jordan Bennington stand, stood on his goddamn head. Yep. We had so many opportunities. And do you know what I remember about the Bruins? It's never about Tuka Rask. It's about missed opportunities, missed open nets, which – that reminds me of something else. That missed, <laughs> the worst missed open net I've ever seen in my goddamn life with Boston. with Boston. No, un- unbelievable. But that's always what I remember. And, and I'm, I'm interested to know, like, so you're not about Patri- so you're not a Patriots fan? No, okay, boy. cool. So I'm interested to know, like, when you look back on those seasons, so those 2013, 2019 Stanley Cup runs. Do you look at those as disappointments, or do you look at those as like, listen, that was amazing. We got all the way there. Yeah, we didn't win it, but what else can you ask for?
5: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I couldn't have said it any better. Honestly, I'm sure um, you could have. <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> like 2013 against the Blackhawks, everyone brings up the 17 seconds, like that heartbreaker. Like, but if you. I actually have recently rewatched those two goals and I think it actually was Andrew Ferrance and Chara, uh, defending. They were nowhere near the net. They were often no man's land. They weren't like Tuca was left out to dry. Like the Blackhawks were hammering him. Like it was two greasy goals too. Like it was horrible goals that never should have happened. They should have never been that close to the net at that corner sliding that puck in. I think it was, bickle and i forget who else scored it but that's all on rask but uh, the, the guy, guy is one in? man like he's one man and i i honestly see uh the two cup finals with him as a success because also in game seven against the blues the bruins scored one freaking goal and it was matt Grizzlick in the third period with like a few minutes left and the blues were already up four like Nobody showed up. No yeah. Bergeron. No. No anyone. No one was there. <laughs> so you don't win by not scoring in Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final. Like the Bruins beat Vancouver in a shutout for nothing. That's how you win. Like yeah. I mean, Tuca. Like you said, Tuca isn't perfect. I'm not saying he doesn't let in soft goals or have bad days, but no player is perfect but somehow Tuka gets all the blame like when they win oh Tuca, but when they lose oh it's Tuka's fault so it's it's definitely a success even getting that far with him
1: yeah I, I think the 2013 you just you just came up against a wagon right uh, the, the Blackhawks were at the height of their powers and that they just they were just so good that I'll, for, for that run I'll always remember it was a mo- it was the Toronto series right you're down three goals. And Bergeron scores in, in, in overtime. Jack, or was it? Uh, it was one of the play-by-play guys that you just hear Bergeron, Bergeron, like that. that, that that's one
4: to- of my listen. I, I don't mean to interrupt. That's one of my favorite sports memories. Like literally since beginning of sports, I, I still go back sometimes. If I'm having a bad, rough day, I will go back and watch that third period of that game just because of how amazing it really was. Like that team had heart, and I, I and I I would always say, and, and
1: uh, Bobby will can attest to this. I don't hold 2013 against him. Like that, the, you, he played so well. I, I don't I don't remember the stats. I think he was like 14 and eight with a. It was not nine. A, I
4: think it was. It was, like it, was it was like it was 14 and eight
1: bit. with a sub two uh, goals against average. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, like those stats are comparable to, to Tim Thomas in 2011. They might even be a little bit better the game seven in 2019, the team didn't show up. They let, they, they hung them out to dry, but that's a game where, you know, four, four, one feels too much. Like maybe like I would, I think my outlook on him. And again, I'm just speaking for me. My, my outlook on him would have been different if that game ended at like two, one, right. Even if they're up two nothing, you just, just show that you're, that you're going to, you are going to fight your ass off. So I think this year he showed guts and I, do you think he had to? Like, do you think he knew uh, all the things that we were saying? Not, not, not us, but maybe even play, uh, people in the locker room after uh, after the whole bubble experience last year. I, for someone who who writes about the team and is is, is a, a far bigger puckhead than I am, do you think that was on his mind all year? That I have to be here.
5: I truly don't think Tuka cares what people think. He cares about his team, yep. but he doesn't read Twitter he's not reading articles he's not listening to Boston sports radio especially um but i every year um like in the post uh post loss zoom at the end of the season just this year they asked all the players about Tuka they're like you know do you think it's fair the criticism he gets and they're like no like the guy fights his butt off every single game for us. We would be nowhere without him. I mean, obviously they're not going to trash his, their goalie, Yeah. but everyone knows, like I know that Tuca knows too. He doesn't know the extent or the specifics, but he knows that he's heavily criticized and I think he feeds off it, but I don't think it's always on his mind. Like, oh, I need to please the fans. Like, I don't think he cares he just wants to do his best because he's also very passionate and he's known to be an angry goalie. And that's another reason I hate when people say he has no passion because I'm sure you've seen the infamous video of him throwing milk crates back in the AHL when he lost a game. And um, one of my favorite pictures is when um, I think it was the lightning scored when uh, Tuco lost his uh, stick blade and he took it off the ice and was shoving it in the ref's face like, look, I lost my blade like he's just like, Like angry and fiery and passionate and that to me shows that he does care like people are like oh like he's emotional this and that like i think it's awesome and i think he wants to do everything he can because the guy if he didn't care he wouldn't have played hurt um so that's a really big deal
0: on april 6th we are honored to be joined by former general manager of the boston celtics from 1984 to 1997 jan volk in episode 50 Jan talks to us about how he first started working in the Boston Celtics front office under Red Auerbach, and how he was hand-chosen by Red to be his successor as general manager. Jan also talked to us about some of his favorite stories from the front office, from learning what the salary cap was, to some of his favorite NBA draft moves, from trading for Bill Walton in 1985, to the drafting of Len Bias
6: in 1986. The period where Red did everything, right? Like, you know, before you got there, famously he was scouting other teams you know scouting college players like doing absolutely everything on the list so he like when to feel handpicked by him you must have felt oh wow this is a job he probably has a way to do it already you know himself so i better get it right or is it just in context in retrospect being like oh that was a big moment um well let me tell let me tell you something about red that
7: people don't readily recognize um for a guy who had the success that he had And for a guy who had the ego that he had, that he needed to have was a surprise. It's a surprise to people to realize that he had holes in his game that he knew about. He knew he wasn't particularly good at this or that or something else. And he hired people to fill those roles. And that was a great opportunity for me because that's, he hired me in that, in that context. And, um, Ultimately, um, I, I my career evolved as the business was evolving. There's no better way to learn than to be a participant in something with, like like running a team franchise when nobody else really knows how to do it
6: either. Yeah, you're kind of building the plane while you're flying it, right? Yeah, <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite that, but uh, <laughs> but it, if nobody else got hurt. But there were there were mistakes made. Right. We made mistakes. And, um, for the most part, we did pretty, pretty well with, it. I, I, the interesting thing about this heat, when red, when red decided to retire, he announced it at the B'nai B'rith dinner, uh, which was a, uh, uh, dinner, a, a charitable, uh, event that was held each year prior to the first, uh, game, uh, at a, at a you know, nice venue and lots of people, maybe 2000 people. And he was, he would always speak and he was speaking. This was in, um. This would have been in um, October, maybe of uh, 90, uh, excuse me, 83, give or take. I think that's when it was. And he got up and announced, unbeknownst to any of us, (laughs) that he was going to retire at the end of the year. And then he did something that just blew my socks off in front of these 2,000 people. That he, he said, and I'm recommending that Jan Bull take
6: my place. Oh, wow. You didn't even know that you were lined up. Never
7: discuss that with me.
6: Wow. What was your reaction at the time?
7: Red got what he wanted most of the time.
6: <laughs> <laughs> happens that this worked out well for me too. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, so- when you were going to his office, when you got summoned to his office that day, did you know, it sounds like you knew at the time, oh, this is a big deal. I better not screw this up. Or is it just in kind, like looking back, you're like, oh, that was a big moment. I, I'm much more so looking back than in, in, in the moment itself. I, yes, I, I was, um, it caught my
7: attention. I mean, it, it was, um, it, it was something I'd never done before. As I said, I'd never been summoned to the locker room. I'd never been in the locker room with just red. Um, and it was, um, it, it, that was notable, but, um, I didn't understand the significance that it had because of course it, it led to so many other things.
8: Yeah, it led to so many things because from 1971 to to 1979, 1980, uh, you you held a number of positions and and very, very good. I mean, now you look at sports and you know who the traveling secretaries are. You know, you, you know who some of these people are. And then uh, in 1980, he he named you know obviously a few years later, he names you or suggests you as his successor. But in 1980, he basically uh sits here right next to him uh and and that started really in that moment started one of the the best runs in the franchise's history in the 1980s well that had a lot to do with the players
7: <laughs> much more to do with anything else um but um but it was an interesting place to work It was a great place to work um people who began to work at the celtics had to understand, and mo- and most of them did, or they didn't stay very long. They had to understand that no matter what they did or how successful they were, uh, Red was going to get the credit. In the end, that's <laughs> what was, what was going to happen. And if you could live with that, you would, would. You found yourself into a really, really mom and pop, um, welcoming organization where everybody helped everybody else. There was no in that type of environment when you know Red's going to get the credit, you're really. All the only opportunity for you to get that kind of credit was collectively as part of a group. Um, you find people work together very, very
6: effectively without worried about who's going to
7: get the credit, and who had to worry about what. And that was a, it was a nice place to be.
6: It's funny you say that because I heard the credit for, uh, this could may or may not be true, um, I have to hear from the horse's mouth, but I hear the credit for the way Larry Bird was drafted should go to you though, right? Wasn't that your side of the argument that he, you could... You get away with drafting him as a junior, waiting a year, and then getting him, getting him in. Or am I? Did I? Did I hear wrong? Oh, you
7: got well. Uh, you you got it sort of right. I mean, I knew the I knew the rules. I as as I said, Red knew he had holes in his game, and he hired people to fill those holes. That was one of the holes that were. It was getting more and more complex. It's extraordinarily complex now. Right. But the advent of the um of the salary cap, which um which came after we had drafted Larry, but the advent of the salary cap really was a uh, a significant um uh, event for me because um we were capped and we had to learn it really quite quickly red didn't red red relied on on us and relied on me to know that uh and it, it and the same is is true as as you point out the um the the issue with the draft whether we could we could draft him or not it was it wasn't that there wasn't a rule there it it had been modified And Red didn't know that. And um, yes, he trusted me, but no, he didn't. And uh, uh, what happened is Tom Sanders popped in. Tom at the uh, Tom Sanders Satch for a period of time was uh, at that time was, was uh, the head coach for um, half a season or so. And um, he, he saw the two of us, two very stubborn people trying to convince the other that they were right. And and he uh, had had the perfect solutions and call the league. They'll tell you. <laughs> and we did. Yeah, and David Stern happened to be the general counsel at the time. He was not yet uh, commissioner. And um, he, he verified it. So, But we were also in the right spot for that because Larry had told the world he was not coming out. He was going to go back for his senior year. And the old rule was that uh, once he went back to school, an early entry um, draftee like that, um, the team lost their exclusive rights to him. and He went back into the pool in, in reality, what, what, what ultimately happened is you had the exclusive rights until he, uh, um, until the day before the next draft, which is how we drafted him.
6: I guess he was worth the wait. It worked out. <laughs> Redwood, Redwood tell you to be the first to say he was better than
7: I thought he was. I thought he's gonna be really good. is what he, what he would say, mm-hmm. but I didn't know he was gonna be this
8: good.
6: Yeah, Thanks, how do you know?
8: One, yeah. of, one of the best in franchise history, right? So, um, just Any franchise history.
6: any
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah you're still right. I, I think I want to, I still want to stick with the 70s. Cause I know we we kind of touched around different things that happened in the 70s. And, you know, you mentioned the Charlie Scott, uh, Charlie, Charlie Scott, excuse me, uh, for Paul Salas, who, you know, was one of the better bench players that we've had here in and, and Boston who came on to become a great coach they are in, in in the NBA as well. Um, but obviously, you know, there, were, there was two championships in the 70s and they won in 74 and 76 under Tom Heinsohn's swindler. Um, uh, so, you know, what, what would you say was the, was the better team out of all of those two? And, you know, do you think Tommy Heinsohn should have stayed longer as the coach there? Cause I know he was only there for about four or five seasons.
7: Well, you know, I, 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 I've had questions like that, but never would be compared 74 and 76. Um a lot of lot of similarity. Great heart. Um mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, when you've got when you've got a your center's Dave Cowens. I mean you've got a you have automatically got a, a huge step towards that. Um I boy, I tell you, I, I I don't think I can I can choose there. I think uh that was a um that was an extraordinary team. You know, they they were small, they ran the break. They were, uh, they, they were very active and they played hard with talent. Um, so I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to beg off that. Uh, as far as Tommy is concerned, um, you know, Tommy would be the first to tell you that in the end, coaches are hired to be fired and it takes a while. It It, it takes a while to burn out, but they all, most of them do in one way or another. And, and it's, it's usually a consequence of having been been with the same players over a uh, protracted period of time where um, there's a lot of um, the cajoling that goes on. That um, in, in Tommy's case, I think the players um, got tired of his um, interaction with the referees, um, but in the end, he was very supportive of his, of his players, very much so, um, and uh, they... I, I think they appreciated it much more so after he had left. I know that, for example, JoJo got traded. Ultimately, was uh, he came back and he, um, he, he saw how special it was playing for Tommy, and he missed it.
0: On May 13th, we sat down with the then-producer of the Section 10 podcast and co-host of Live BP on WEI in Boston, Steve Peralt. From Episode 59, let's talk some socks, kid.
4: I mean, Barnes has been pretty good so far this year. At he's that been closer. really
9: good. I mean, you, you could make the argument Barnes is the best closer in baseball, which is insane. I mean, right, I right. It was always words I never saw. It. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm, I've always been ripping Maddie backpacks and all of a sudden it's like now he's the best closer <laughs> in baseball and I can't really say anything about it. Like, I know Chapman's been really good. You go down the line. There's other guys that are performing well, but he knows it, too, which is good. Like, I'm glad that he's carrying himself like I'm the guy because like there's a there's such a difference between being the closer, like because you were placed in that role and actually being a closer. And Barnes is proving that he's a closer, which is blowing my mind. I always thought it was just going to be that he was named the guy, but you never felt good when he came out of there and uh, out of the bullpen in save situations. Uh, but yeah, he has a zero ERA when in save situations. So you can't really get much better than that. And to that point, too, why would the Red Sox go out of their way to give up pieces they probably don't think they need to give up for a closer when they have a closer. Now, if you really want to go all-in and say Kimbrel's your eighth-inning guy, because right now Ottavino cannot be the eighth-inning guy, my God, he's an absolute mess. He walks guys all over the place. Same with Darwinson. Darwinson can't find the plate, so maybe if they wanted to go like all-in, all-in and have... Kimbrel as the 8th inning guy. How bizarre would that be, by the way, that your former closer comes back as the 8th inning guy when he has an 7 ERA, but um, hey, I don't see it happening. But, yeah, it's, yeah, I know. I was going to say, whatever gets the job done, they're going to have to add pieces to the bullpen. I just don't think it's going to be Kimbrel.
4: Your former World Series winning closer, too. I know, I
9: know, even though that, <laughs> let you know. My God, that postseason and like
4: that Yankees game, the Yankees game was the one that that was that was the scariest game of my entire life. That that was up there, man. (laughs) I snuck
9: into Yankee Stadium for that. I should have just got tickets, but like I was hanging with my buddies (laughs) and I was like, all right, the Red Sox are about to to beat the Yankees in the playoffs. I have to go to this. I was like 20 minutes away. I'm like, let's do it. Uber to Yankee Stadium. Get in there. I'm just peeing my pants. This guy is just the worst. Like he's given up. Gary Sanchez almost had a home run. That thing barely, barely missed going out. Uh, I think I don't know if it was Judge somebody else went to the warning track it was like end this game and then the ending was was crap
4: It was it was Giancarlo that gave them that game I don't know if you remember but Kimbrel couldn't find the plate and Giancarlo yep. swung at two sliders that weren't even close and yeah. it was like if, if I was his head coach I'd be sitting there in the dugout like bro that bat's not leaving your shoulder like I don't get yeah.
8: I I don't think Boone had the balls to tell him that Well yeah
4: I know but,
3: no, it it was the Bregman game. It was Game Four against Houston that year. That's the game that got me. Oh my camp.
9: god! And I was Benny like, Breg-
3: yeah, Bre- yeah, Bregman was up. I was like, oh my god! Like I was like, please! Like I I I just knew that Bregman was gonna hit a grand slam, and I was gonna be yelling f bombs in my house for the rest of the night. <laughs> it
9: was it was a guarantee that he was gonna make good contact. There was no way Bregman was like striking out there. Uh, and Bregman did himself no favors, by the way. Post he had that IG video or the IG story whatever that he posted when they went back to Houston of him like rocking Evaldi or whoever it was yeah, I, and they obviously saw the Sox saw that and that's all you needed to to see and the the series ends in Houston but um yeah that Benny catch was incredible and now I I wish Benny was still here
8: did you say you snuck into Yankee Stadium
9: yeah it was a hell of a process it was a hell of a process I. And I, I just like I like the sound of it, too. It's like I snuck in to see the Red Sox beat the Yankees in the playoffs. It, it sounded cool. But no, Even I
4: more of a middle finger, you know, it's like, a I know, seriously, the Yankees. yeah.
9: <laughs> and I was all undercover. I didn't have sock stuff on or anything. So it looked like I could have been like, you know, on the staff or something there at Yankee Stadium. But no, it was because like, basically, it was incredible, right? Because so many people are leaving dejected Yankee fans because the Red Sox are about to knock them out of the playoffs. And so naturally, they have the gates open but they still have security people that are kind of like, you know, they're in the mode of like, we're three outs away from my, I can go home and not have to worry about this stupid team anymore. Cause they have to work all year, obviously. And so I just kind of slipped, you know, slid in, found my way in the, the first try was a failure. I bumped into this kid that couldn't be any older than four years old. And his dad was ready to kill me. He was just like, you want to go buddy? you want to go? I'm like, Sir, there is no way I want to fight. That's literally the last thing I want to do. I'm trying to get in to see my team win this series. There's no. Way I also did not run you. over your four year old on purpose. <laughs> I know it's because they had a flood of people coming out, and all of a sudden I'm like, I was trying to be sneaky, and then I went right into this kid. Uh, um, but no, you know, find a way to get in there, and then the Kimbrel inning happened, and it was the ending of that game was so weird, right? Because they have the ground out to to uh, what's his face Nunez. He falls over when he throws it, and like they barely got him out. They had to check the replay, but whatever. They got out of Yankee Stadium with the win. That's all that matters.
8: And you got into Yankee Stadium to see the win, so that's perfect.
9: Exactly. Exactly. It's a
0: win-win. Episode 73 on July 20th featured Annie O'Donnell on TikTok fame and the Odeon Sports Podcast. In this clip, Annie and the boys discuss the troubling circumstances of Trevor Bauer's in-season suspension for alleged sexual assault.
8: So we have to bring this name up, but we have to bring this story up. Okay trevor
9: bauer
8: okay. i know we have the same opinion on trevor i i well we all have the same opinion on trevor bauer we, what if i would hope odds- yeah it might yeah <laughs> and it's gonna sign off real quick if we no, no.
10: i wouldn't sign off we'd have a discussion for sure
8: but, but well let's have a discussion anyway because okay. it's a it's a hot button topic and they just extended his suspension uh his uh, sorry Administrative leave through July
1: twenty seven. Hold on, hold on. The key part of that though, Joe, is his paid administrative
8: leave. He's he paid in. administrative hey. leave, which, which is, is something that people who make a lot of money uh, are afforded to that some other people uh, are not. But what are what are your you're you're in l you're in l a San Diego, so you're kind of boots on the ground and uh, for lack of better term here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Trevor Bauer situation?
10: Um. I've Every time I've been asked this question, I've, I, I do feel the need to kind of clear the air on my stance because when the Dodgers first signed Bauer, uh, personally, honestly, the reigning Cy Young winner, I was excited. Anyone that's going to suit up in Dodger blue, I want them to do well. I'm going to root for their success. And in terms of his past tweets and uh, you know the whole ordeal with him harassing women on Twitter— I, I'm of the belief that we can change, that we can improve ourselves as people. So I said, how am I, who am I to say that this young man can't either. I say young man, I think he's older than me. (laughs) Who am I to say this guy can't improve himself and grow as a person either. So I said, I'll give him a chance. I'll root for him. He's a dodger. He's on our team. However, um, that stance does not come into play in terms of domestic violence and what was read, what I read by the athletic, that was absolutely horrific. Um, I think everybody I've taught every Dodger fan that I've spoken to. I know it's not the collective view of the fan base, but I think it's of the majority is that we're done with him. Honestly, um, at this point in time, this Dodgers team has been, and I hate bringing, you know, play into this on such a serious topic, but this Dodgers team, despite a very, uh, but despite one of the top records in the league, they've been very they really haven't hit their stride in the first half of the season. They've been very inconsistent. So I think taking this distraction and he is a distraction, he's for lack of a better word. I mean, the vlogging, the the, the Internet stuff and everything, uh, I think it's the best for the team to just move on. But I know that's not necessarily the way things have to happen because of, you know. There was a whole deal when everything came out and the Dodgers didn't say anything. And Dave Roberts said, well, my ha- our hands are tied because it's at the league level. And I understand that the Dodgers couldn't suspend him and they couldn't just outright kick him off the team. But Dave Roberts absolutely had in his jurisdic- jurisdiction to take him out of the rotation. Absolutely. He's suspended and sat players for worse. He sat Cody Bellinger for not hustling to second base one game back in 2018. He sat Yasiel Puig for showing up late to practice. You're telling me you can't take Trevor out of the game because of this entire, you know, for one, just aside from the whole investigation, the fact that there's no way he's going to be focused on on the game on, on that Sunday, and it's going to be a distraction for the locker room, if anything. But no, you're going to say, no, he's going to start on the mound. What's the, the message that you're sending to your fans, to Dodger fans who are, A very diverse group. I feel like that's one of the most best things about sports is just that, you know, every fan base is just a melting pot of different income classes, races, backgrounds, whatever. But domestic violence and sexual assault affect everybody. So that's that message there, I thought was communicated very poorly. Um, Will he ever, do I think he'll ever see a major, it depends on how. The investigation goes and investigations take time, as we all know. But um, I don't want him suiting up in Dodger blue ever again, uh, regardless of how this goes down, because he didn't deny it. He said it did happen. It was just consensual. And I I don't see him suiting up in Dodger blue at all. So I say cut the ties as soon as you can. Um, I do want him if if and when he's found guilty. And, you know, the process does it. I do want him to be held accountable and responsible because there's a young woman who is dealing with probably hell right now, not only just physically from injuries, but emotionally, internally, trauma, all oops, trauma, all that. But, yeah, I don't want to see him on a, on a diamond. And I don't see another team taking a chance on him either, frankly. I, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think any level of talent is worth it. I don't think the mess is worth it. And I think a lot of people are going to question Andrew Friedman and the due diligence that they did during the signing. I, I do. I don't entirely blame him because, like I said, I kind of saw the tweets from years ago. I said, you know, not great, but not illegal. Like, it's not illegal to be a douchebag. It's not illegal to be a jerk online, unfortunately. But it's one of those things where you look back and said, yeah, where where was the stone left unturned? Where was there signs there that this was a problem? We'll never know, but yeah, I'm done with Trevor Bauer and I'm done with his age. I'm done with Rachel Luba too, honestly. She's, I've I've been supportive of her because women in sports and she's done great thing. I I root for her success, but the way she responded to this and the statement she put out there and releasing the text messages, trying to oust this woman, I, it just, it's spineless to me.
8: There's so much in, in, you know, on, on face level, I think we we all we all agree on the fact that what happened was not okay. Um, as Mike and I have Mike and I have an unofficial segment on on all of our shows now of uh, that's something you can't do or what's some you know like you just can't do that you can't say that you can't do that and right. um, there's so much left to to find out in this story uh, because right. for him for him personally he like you said basically came out and said it. It did happen, but it was consensual. And she came out and said consensual to a point. And then right. that that's where when someone says there's a point and then they weren't comfortable with it, that's, that's end game. That's it right there. Yep. Uh, anything that be, happens beyond that is, is not okay. Uh, and, and that's where Trevor Bauer crossed the line. Um, I agree with you on Rachel Luba, I think. And I, I, we have to go here because it is sports. It is people that are successful money talks. And Definitely. for her, Money was definitely a part of it. She's, uh, he is her biggest uh, client. And for the second two,
10: him and Yasiel Puig.
8: Yeah, well, gee, okay. Well, all right. She just lost a few more points. I forgot Yasiel Puig was one of, one of the of.
10: Yeah, she's, she doesn't have a great track record with her. No, I, get, I guess not.
8: And then, you know, you, you look at Dave Roberts and, and you, you mentioned pulling people out of the lineup for, for doing a lot, a lot less. I mean, we're talking about on-field stuff because he said hands are tied it's at the MLB level when he said hands are tied I think he meant his hands are tied I think the decision was above him and and, and, and as, as as a as a father and a husband and someone who has uh, you know um, not been in that situation but wouldn't you want to take a step back and be like I don't I don't really care. Like, he's not in my starting rotation. Like, take a stand. But then it comes down to money and a job for him, for, for, for,
1: for Roberts. And it's just like, it's a, to, like to Annie's point, right? If you're going to bench someone for not hustling to second. No, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, can't you find it within your, like, within you just to bench someone for essentially raping somebody? Like, just, yeah. If that's ever even thrown out there, like, okay, like, you're out until this is cleared up. Also, right. The MLB has the, the power to do a couple of interesting things, right? They could say, like, listen, during this investigation, like, because domestic violence is, is in there, it empowers them to transfer uh, liabilities to the Dodgers. So if Manfred doesn't want to come down with a ruling, he could say, listen, like, you guys deal with it. Or what I think, what I think, what he, what he could do, I'm interested in, uh, for your take on this, Andy. What would you think about them voiding his contract? Is that the way that they should go?
10: It, I say this knowing that, I mean, I feel like they can't do anything. I mean, the MLB has to do its own investigation and that yeah. has to all be cleared up. And you got to think there's going to be, unless there's, I can't think of a situation where this doesn't pr- proceed further and go into trial because they basically said, hey, everything happened. It was just consensual. He's not going to plead, you know. I, I'm not a, listen, I'm a sports podcaster. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not big into legal jargon or the legal process, but, I, if it's put in the Dodgers hands, um, which if Manfred does that, um,
8: I don't think he will though.
10: Uh, my model for Manfred is disappointed, but not surprised. Yeah, exactly. Every time when he goes low, he just finds more ways to just go lower on the
8: list. (laughs) You mean, you mean when he was handing over an MVP trophy last year, three sheets to the wind? Well,
10: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> and finally, to round things out, we were joined twice this year by the head Patriots beat writer for the Boston Herald, Karen Garigian. And amongst other things, we discussed the unfair comparisons between the 2021 season for the Patriots
1: and the little season that happened back in 2001. Well, the one thing that I'll ask you uh, about is, so I uh, I have a little bit of PTSD from 2007, right? I think we all do. Matt Judon to me feels a lot like Adelius Thomas. So Karen, I need you to tell me why, why this is not going to be the same situation, and uh, and tell me that you've seen things because you were there for Adelius, right? Who so- bring
11: back the Jetsons? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, that? Remember that he went. He he got uh, sent away because he he didn't get there in a snowstorm, and he said. What do you mean? I'm going to get it like the Jetsons and fly here. <laughs> I mean, that was like the best Adela's times moment. I'm sorry. I, we regress or I digress. Oh, no,
1: you're fine. But I, I, when I think of an outside roaming linebacker from Baltimore that you spend a lot of money on, he's the first guy that, that comes to mind. So for Patriot fans like me out there, what have you seen so far in camp, right? That leads you to believe that he will fit in this system.
11: Well, he looks like a perfect fit. Um, and but, you know, it's so weird. So did Adalus Thomas, but I, I think. Adalus Thomas, basically, here's the thing with Bill Belichick and defense and it applied to Jamie Collins, too. You're going to do what Bill Belichick tells you, and you're going to play your position the way Bill Belichick wants you to No freelancing, right? I think Adelis Thomas was a freelancer. Jamie Collins was a freelancer and got sent away. When he came back, he stopped the freelancing because he he finally got it. Bill Belichick's defenses are so specific that everyone has to do their thing, and if someone kind of breaks rank, everything, you know, is a mess. Do I think Judon? It seems more in line with doing what Belichick says. I do. So, but we'll see.
1: Good. Thank you. That's all I needed to hear.
11: Belichick. Belichick hasn't spent I mean, I know we're in the day of inflated salaries, but he, Judon represents the most Belichick has ever spent on a defensive player. free agent wise. So. We'll see. And as I said, uh when we were chatting earlier i like I, I like his makeup i like matt judon's makeup <laughs> <laughs> and um and he seems to again he seems to get it so we'll see maybe i'll be proven wrong
8: craig go ahead i know you got something to say
0: i i just want i just want to sidebar real quick since the proper dailies thomas there aren't a lot of singular plays that i remember because I've watched football for a long time, like we all have. I When I think of Adelius Thomas, I still think back in 2009, Brett Favre was on the Jets, and Adelius Thomas just destroying him like 40 yards back in the backfield that one play. It was I'd love Adelius Thomas on the Patriots. He's one of my favorites.
11: Well, he actually, it, to be fair, I mean, he was actually very good in the playoffs for them one year. He might have been their best player.
1: He 7 right?
11: Yeah, but he... But again, it's just that he and Belichick clashed. Adela saw himself doing, you know, playing the way he wanted in the defense or doing what he wanted to do in the defense. Whereas, you know, Belichick trying to put him in positions to succeed or positions that would best help the defense collectively. It might not have been where Davis wanted to play, but in Bill's mind, this is where he was needed, And I think that's where a lot of the clashing uh, took place.
1: Yeah, that, that was just, uh, so I, I think Judon is, uh, obviously they're different players, right? But if you look at the tape, so much of, uh, of his, uh, of the stats that really got him paid were predicated on the fact that he saw something and he did it. Which made me believe that he was that he was a, a freelancer, and I know that Belich- as you mentioned, Belichick's defense is predicated on the fact that if everyone does what he thinks that they're going to do, it'll hold up. If one person doesn't, then you've exposed a whole side of the field. So that was my one concern. hes He's super talented, so was Adelius Thomas, but I, I'm glad to th- you know I'm glad to to hear that you think that as of this point, he is He's someone that, that, will, that will fall in rank and do what he's supposed to do. That makes me feel very, really good.
11: He sounds like, well, I don't know. Again, you can, you know, can talk a good game and sound like you're buying in. But for now, he sounds like he's buying in.
1: He's a really nice guy. Some would say sweet as apple pie.
11: Hey, guys, it's
6: Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you.
11: Trick-ass.